The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. I'd like to invite you to open your Bible together. We're going to Genesis chapter 15. We're in the second part of Genesis 15, looking at verses 7 through 21. We are in our seventh or eighth week in our series looking at the faith of our father, the life of of Abraham, and I mentioned to you last week that Genesis 15 is among my favorite chapters in the Old Testament, and uh, that is because Genesis 15 is riveting. It's breathtaking. And I want us to see just why this chapter is so wonderful together as we look at the covenant God from Genesis and chapter 15. So you definitely want to have your Bible there and keep it open, but as you're, as you're turning there and as you've already arrived there, uh, not this past week, but the week ahead of that, the Quad City Times reported that uh, one of the cranes that was being used in the bridge construction collapsed. Okay? And I was struck by the irony of that. That the thing that is supposed to hold things up cannot itself stand. The thing that is supposed to hold things up cannot itself stand. And I think it is somewhat of a reflection that we are sometimes skeptical that God's promises could really stand as well. Could really stand all the time and be consistent and firm and assured. Because we're used to things letting us down. We're used to things collapsing. We're used to things not coming through or people going back on their word. We are used to being disappointed and not being assured. But the Christian faith is a faith in which you can be assured, absolutely assured, guaranteed of God's promises to you. And God is in the business of assuring our faith. What we've been seeing together in the book of Genesis is that God has made promises to Abram. The substance of those Abrahamic promises, we've been saying it every single week, land, seed, and blessing. A promised land, a promised posterity of children, and a future blessing to go to all the nations. The Abrahamic promises, land, seed, and blessing. And what we've been seeing so far in chapter 15 is that in the first six verses last week, we saw that Abram is struggling to grasp these promises. And so God shows Abram a sign to demonstrate, no, Abram, these things are true. Go out into the night sky and look upon the stars and number them if you are able. So shall your offspring be, is what we saw last week. God wants to assure Abram's faith and assure him that the promises of God are true. Now, in the second half of chapter 15, now that God has met Abram's struggling faith with assurance, now he wants to nurture that faith with assurance and the way God builds assurance in Abram's life is the same way God builds assurance in your life. And the way that he does that is through this wonderful concept in the Bible called covenant. Covenant is the means by which God strengthens, builds, and nourishes, and sustains your faith as a Christian believer. Covenant is always the way God works. It is the most essential, perhaps, understanding of the Bible to understand how God works by way of 
covenant. And so where in the first six verses of chapter 15, God was showing Abram the promises, in the second half, 7 through 21, he is going to confirm them, solidify them, put them in stone, and say, here, Abram, these are true. So that's what's ahead in chapter 15. So let us pray. We'll ask God's blessing upon his word and then we will enjoy God's word together this morning. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Lord, we believe that this is not just a book, but it is your holy word living and active, fully and totally inspired by the Holy Spirit and without error so that we whose lives are constantly assailed by doubt and worry and fear might have the strength to walk a life of Christian faithfulness. And so, Lord, come and teach us. Teach us by the power of the Spirit. Take these words that the Holy Spirit moved Moses to record for us and plant them into our hearts and into our minds. Illuminate our lives that we might receive and understand and obey and apply this word. And so come now, Lord, in the power of your Spirit to do a wonderful thing in your midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word from Genesis chapter 15, beginning at verse 7 through the end of the chapter. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the land of the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. So may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts. 
Uh, you've got an outline there in your bulletin this morning, and if it's helpful to you, we want to see Genesis 15, 7 through 21, according to these uh, three things, namely that as our faith needs assurance, God's answer is covenant, and we need God's covenant for three reasons, and we see that in Abram's life, but we also understand it from our own lives as well. And so what we're going to try to do is not only see Genesis 15 as it exists in the historical context of Abram's life, but also try to understand how what God does to Abram intersects our own lives with deep significance and the promises that are contained there for us as well, not just for Abram. And again, Genesis 15 is riveting. It is earth shattering what we see here in the text. And I hope by the Spirit of God uh, that your heart might be moved with such joy to see what God does here. So the main point is that God nurtures our faith through his covenant and we need that for three reasons. And the first is because we are anxious. We are anxious people and so is Abram. As we see Abram in verses 7 through 10, we find in verse 7 that God is still speaking with Abram and reminding Abram and reaffirming to Abram this promise of the land. Verse 7, God speaks to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to you. I will give this land to possess. He's speaking of the promised land. That's why we call it the promised land because God promised to give it to Abram and his children. What we previously saw in the first six verses is that God had reaffirmed to Abram the promise of seed, the second of the Abrahamic promises. The first six verses of chapter 15 were all about children and posterity and the generations that would follow Abram that aren't here yet. And God wanted to encourage Abram on that point. But now the second half of the chapter is about this issue of land. So again, God says to Abram, remember what I have done for you. Remember where you were in the Ur of Chaldeans, and I brought you out of that land, the land of the Babylonian people. Remember, it was a place of paganism where the moon was the primary object of worship in that time, that Abram used to be a Babylonian pagan moon worshiper. But now God has called him to worship him. God says to Abram, remember from where you were and where I have called you. Remember all that I have done and what I have promised to do, namely to give you this land. Don't forget I've promised to do this. But again, we are anxious people and we find Abram in verse 8. Abram responding to the Lord, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How will I know? We've all asked that question of, of God on some varied topic. Right? How, how can I know and how will I know for sure? Abram is saying to God, how will I know that this is true? Now, now be absolutely convinced that Abram is not here uh, representing for us doubt. He's not doubting. Just like we saw last week, Abram is not doubting God's promises. Remember what verse 6 told us? Verse 6 says that Abram believed the Lord. That's why Abram is called the father of the faithful. Abram is an example of believing faith. And so when he asks here in verse 8, how shall I know? It is not in the name of weakness that, God, that he asks God this question. It is out of interest. It's not out of a wavering faith. 
It's motivated by a faith that is longing for assurance. What God has promised to Abram, Abraham cares about. And he wants to know, how will I see it? How will I know? Abram wants God's promises to be proven firm and for sure. How will I know? So we see God responding to the question. Oftentimes, you know, we ask that, that question and we, we are not engaged in this kind of revelatory dialogue that Abram is experiencing. But when Abram asks the question, how shall I know? God has an answer for him. And it seems absolutely strange. Do you see what happens in verse 9? God says, you want to know? Go, go fetch me these animals. The heifer, the goat, the ram, the turtle dove, the pigeon. Go get me these animals. Now, this, this seems strange to us. And we think perhaps, like, is this some kind of ceremonial, sacrificial thing that's, that's going to be happening? Uh, it seems strange, but do you notice that it doesn't seem strange to Abram? Like, he doesn't say, why? You know, why would I do that? He just goes and, and gets them. He goes and fetches all of those things. Abram seems to understand what is happening here, and you and I need to get a better understanding of what is happening here because this is what we call the cutting of a covenant ceremony. Genesis 15 is all about the covenant ceremony here. Now, in the Bible, but not only in the Bible, but in the ancient world, uh, covenants were made and established. These are ancient covenants. Now, when we think of covenants, we think of these really formal things, right? Uh, or maybe not, not so formal, like a handshake, right? We shake someone's hand and it is a short word. Or we think of a contract. Or we think of a legal affidavit, right? These are contractual elements that secure an agreement between two parties, right? There are two parties that engage in contract where there are stipulations for you do this and this shall happen, you don't do this, and there are penalties. That's how a covenant or a contract works. This covenant is a biblical feature where you have two parties and it's usually only invoked when there's something very serious at hand. Especially in the ancient world, a covenant was only entered into when you had two very clear parties who usually were not on equal footing. So usually, historically, these types of covenants were entered into when you had, for example, a conquering nation that subjects a weaker nation, and the weaker nation enters into a covenant with the subjecting nation, where the powerful nation promises what? Protection, provision, if the lesser nation will promise subjection and, and honor. We receive your rule and we will submit to it if you protect us. And a covenant would be entered into in these times where the, the lesser king or the lesser nation would have to swear to the more powerful king or the more powerful nation, we will obey, we will submit, etc. Now, now, historically, this comes into play, not just in the ancient world, uh, but in modern times as well, even though maybe not so modern, maybe a couple hundred years ago or so, uh, people used to literally cut their hands before shaking hands to mix blood, right? A promise sworn in blood, which does what? It, it elevates the significance of the promise, right? It secures it. Now, I remember uh, as a kid uh, watching not just uh, Sword in the Stone, 
but I don't know why, uh, you know, newsies, and they used to spit in their hands and then shake, right? Okay? Like, that's gross. Don't do that. But it signified what? A higher elevated contractual obligation to one another. And in the Bible, that's called a covenant. Where my word is my bond. And the severity of the covenant was usually represented by the fact that blood would have to be shed in the establishment of the covenant, which is why the the language that was used was called cutting a covenant. You cut a covenant. You don't just make a covenant. You cut it. Because it involved bloodshed where, in the ancient times, animals would be cut in half and laid on either side. And we'll come back to this in just a moment here. But the point is, is that a covenant is a promise that is sealed in blood. And what Genesis 15 is saying is that here we were going to see God make a covenant with Abram. So that Abram will have an answer to the question that he asks in verse 8. How will I know? God's answer to our anxious faith is covenant. What does this tell us about who God is? What does this tell us about the God that we worship that we see here in Genesis 15 who enters into a covenant? That God is the one. God is the one who takes the initiative to enter into the covenant with Abram. It's not the case that Abram says to God, God, will you make a covenant with me? No, God says, Abram, I will make a covenant with you. God initiates this. What does this mean? It means that God is willing to go to incredible lengths to help his people believe his promises. God is the one who is willing to go to incredible lengths to help his people believe his promises. He knows that you struggle. He knows that you are anxious. He knows that your faith wavers. And he is a kind father to his children. He knows we have struggles and so he gives us handles, if you like, to hold on to his promises. That's what the covenant is for. To grab hold of what God has said so that in the wrestling that we see Abram in verse 8 that we can identify with ourselves, we might have something to lay hold of in the midst of the how will I know and how do I know for sure? And God says to Abram, here, here is my covenant. Do you see that God doesn't dismiss Abram? He doesn't say, oh, stop worrying about that. He doesn't say, just have more faith. No, God, the Father in heaven will go Many lengths to help his children lay hold of his promises because he loves you. We need God's covenant because we are anxious. And so God says, here it is. But not just because we are anxious, but also because in verses 13 to 16, uh, we see that we are also uh, impatient. We are anxious, but we are also impatient. As we look at the text here, uh, in the midst of all that God is saying and doing for Abram, there is this additional information that we get where God is speaking to Abram, but we see that Abram is asleep. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And we find in verse 13 that the Lord is speaking to Abram. There is this additional information, additional revelation that God is going to tell. These great plans that God has, that Abram has been wondering, how will I know for sure? And when will this all come about? When will this happen? How will all of this come to pass? God speaks 
information to those questions here. And it's helpful because we always want to know when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? God gives a timeline. God is going to say how this plan is going to unfold. And if you're paying attention to the text, you will find an abbreviated history of the nation of Israel in this one section. Do you notice what God says to him in verse 13? Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there. Sojourners and servants. Uh, He goes on to say more, but he's especially saying two things. The first thing that God says to Abram here, speaking to his impatient faith perhaps, is that God tells Abram that it will be a long time before his promises are fulfilled. A long time. See it there at the end of verse 13? They will be afflicted for 400 years. Verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. He's saying that it's going to be 400 years before these promises come to pass. That Abram's descendants will be slaves and sojourners in a land that doesn't belong to them. Consequently, that's what the book of Exodus is about, isn't it? Israel is enslaved in Egypt in a land that isn't their own and they just sojourn back to their own land. God is foretelling the reality of the history of Israel here, but it's going to be four generations until they come back into the land. Four generations of waiting for Abram's promises to become a reality that God has said to him and we want things now, right? 400 years. But God is saying this because he is saying, I will be faithful in the midst of the waiting. It will seem long. And then it will seem longer than it should be. But I am faithful to work things out in my own time, even when it seems long to you, Abram. God does not measure time the way that you do. What seems long to us is but an instant to the God who is himself outside of time. He says, Abram, it will take some time, but not only will it be long, he also says it will be a long and it will be a hard time before the promises are fulfilled. It will be long and it will be hard. Why do you see that it's hard? Because you don't get slavery without suffering. Abram, you're You and your descendants will be slaves in a land that is not your own. God is revealing that his promises will come true to Abram, but he will have scars from the journey. Isn't that something? You know, God never, ever promises you ease. But he always promises that the journey is worth the blessing. Never tells you that as a Christian your life will be easy. In fact, just the opposite, it will be hard. In fact, the apostles preached the exact same message in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 22. It says that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations and trials and sorrows and struggles, we will enter God's kingdom. And the book of Acts reports that when the people heard that, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, they were encouraged. And strengthened. 
What God says here about a hard, long time is a word of strengthening encouragement. Now, you have to decide what you're going to do with that. What do you make of a God who allows you to face trials and temptations and tribulations and distress? What kind of God is that? Some people say that's unjust. It's unloving that God would cause me to go through these things. No, the greater evil would be if God told you nothing about it. The greater injustice would be if God left you ignorant to the reality that life is sometimes hard and then leave you to deal with it yourself without any word, without any counsel, without any instruction. God does not do that. He tells Abram, and Christian believer, he tells you that you will not be preserved from distress, but that you will be preserved through distress. You will be kept by it. That God is faithful to his promises, not apart from hardships, but through hardships. And that might be one of the most difficult lessons to learn in the Christian life. That suffering and trials and hardships might be the primary and choice tool of our sovereign God to make you more like Jesus. But God is faithful to his promises and though we are impatient, God gives us his covenant to sustain us. When it's long and when it's hard, God gives us the covenant. So it is because we are anxious and it is because we are impatient but also, finally, we come to these gory details of the text that everyone wants to know what in the world is, is happening here. We see in the third place that God has given us his covenant because we are anxious, impatient, but also because we are sinners. God has given us his covenant because we are sinners. Abram has hacked these animals in half and he has laid them to the side and do you notice in verse 12, from that point on, Abram is passive. He doesn't do anything. In fact, he falls asleep. And what is said to Abram that we've been looking at, but also what happens in Abram's midst, in the midst of Abram, is happens by way of a vision or something to this, to this extent. Abram is passive. And we want to understand, what is God doing here? What is so significant about this that he puts Abram to sleep? Now we go back to these details of this idea of a covenant ceremony and cutting a covenant. Now what would happen in a covenant ceremony is that the animals would be cut in half, literally, and laid onto one side or the other. And the two parties who were entering into the covenant would stand on either sides and the lesser party of the contract would pass through the cut animals to come to the greater party and make the agreement. The lesser party, the weaker nation, the defeated king, whatever, the lesser party would be the one to pass walking through the cut animals to come to make the agreement with the powerful one. And as they do that, they were metaphorically saying, if I fail to my word, May I be as these animals. That's what the covenant ceremony meant. 
that in my contract, in my covenant with you, I am promising to death that I will fulfill the obligations of this covenant. I assume the fate of these animals upon myself if I am disobedient. That's what's happening here. Except that's not exactly what's happening here. The interesting thing here, the riveting thing, of course, is that Abram is sleeping. That Abram should have been the one to walk through the slain animals and promise himself to God, who is the greater. Historically, contextually speaking, that would have made sense. He is the one who should have been swearing faithfulness to God, but God is the one swearing faithfulness to him. Verse 17, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, which is a foreshadowing of the way in which God would lead the nation of Egypt by the pillar of smoke and fire. God representative through this fire pot and flaming torch passes through the animals. And verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And God is saying that what I have promised to do, I have just ratcheted up to the infinite degree the assurance that you should have that I will do these things. God himself is the one who passes through the animals saying that I will assume the curse of the covenant upon myself if I am unfaithful to you, Abram. Abram, I promise you to death that I will do what I said I will do. It is a picture of how steadfast and faithful Yahweh, the triune God, is. This is astounding with what happens here. That he, the eternal, omnipotent God, says, I would rather cease to exist than fail to my promises to you, Abram. I am willing to embrace the curse of this covenant if I don't do what I have said I will do. He has made that covenant promise to Abram. And here's the point that he has made that covenant promise to the children of Abram as well. You, me, believers in Jesus Christ. God is faithful to his covenant promises. And we need to know that because we are not. Because we are sinners. And so therefore, the curse of the covenant rests upon us. In Genesis 15, God says to Abram, I will assume upon myself the curse of the covenant if I fail to obey. But at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, God says to us, you have been the one who have failed to obey. But I will not enforce the curse of the covenant upon you. I will take it upon myself. That is why we gaze at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and see at the same time something that is terrible and yet full of wonder and love and awe. As the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3, that Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. 
Jesus is destroyed for our covenant breaking. Jesus said in the upper room with his disciples, this is the new covenant that is sealed in my blood because a long, long time ago, my father and your father promised your father that I promise to death that I will be faithful to you. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is faithful to that covenant, promising to death that he will be faithful to pay the price, not only to forgive our sins. That's good. That's wonderful. But the blessings of the covenant are not just the forgiveness of sins, but also so that you and I would have the assurance beyond the farthest doubt that God is for you, that God loves you, That God has moved heaven and earth literally to say to you, I am your God. So that we might say to him, Lord, you are. And I give myself to you. This is, in Genesis 15, this is the channel through which the grace of salvation flows in the Bible. So that to anxious and impatient sinners, God gives the grace of his covenant and nurtures our faith and strengthens it and solidifies it and says, this does not rest on you. It rests upon me. God is the one who makes with Abram an unconditional promise. This does not rest on you, Abram. It rests on me. It does not rest upon you, Christian. It rests upon your Lord. The God of the covenant in Genesis 15 is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the ground of all of our faith and all of our hope and all of our assurance that God is true to his word. Do you believe it? You might ask, like Abram and Verse 8, how do I know for sure? And God says to you, look upon my son and have not a doubt in the world that I am for you and I'm calling for your love and your life. And may that be true of us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible revelation of yourself in the scriptures that we are able to see and know and understand, may we grow in the knowledge of these things so that we might see you as the covenant-keeping God who is worthy of all of our love and obedience. And so, Lord, work in us and transform us that we might be a more faithful people, that you might receive all glory, honor, and praise, for you are worthy. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.